Come to Jesus and find a friend who will love you. Cure all of your loneliness. Heal all of your hurts. Drive away all of your sorrows. Well, this kind of gospel appeal is very frequent, frequently heard today, and it's true and accurate insofar as it goes. The problem, though, is that it can be misleading because it's really incomplete. Much worse are the ones that are downright distortions. God wants you to be happy, successful, rich, and healthy. Come to Jesus and let Him fill you with, with all of His material blessings. We as American Christians tend to distort the gospel by equating Christianity with an easy, comfortable life. God becomes for us the means towards our success and prosperity and ease. We very easily get the misconception that God exists primarily to serve us, forgetting that we exist to serve and glorify Him. This morning we want to look at Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 10, continue looking at His instructions to them before He sent them out in their uh, preaching mission. And we'll see here that there is a price that needs to be paid to be a Christian. First of all, he says in verses 16 to 23 that we are, that they are going out into a hostile world. Verses 1 to 15, he has said that, uh, he is, uh, he calls them, he sends them out in their mission of preaching to the various cities around Israel, and he tells them basically what they're to say and what they're to do. And then in verses 16 to 42, he tells them of the response they're going to get. In this first paragraph, he tells them basically that, that you are going into a hostile world. You have to be realistic and understand this. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever you, they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. Now, many people would lead us to believe, many Christian leaders and groups, that the world is just dying to hear the gospel. If we will just go out and preach it, people will flock to us and love us. I've even heard... Uh, one suggests that, that uh, the only impediment to the gospel for most people is they've never heard a clear presentation of the gospel by a spirit-filled Christian. But Jesus says there is an impediment that's much greater than that, namely the hearts of men, which are hard against God. He says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In verse 17, he says, beware of men. Is no, men are not all basically truth seekers. 
having hearts that are open and all they need to do is be presented with the truth to respond to it. Because men are basically rebels. Rebels against God. Not really wanting to know God or submit to Him or His truth. He says, I send you out and therefore you should be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Mr. and Mrs. Stradley, your child is calling you. Left your parking lights on. He says in verse 16, Be shrewd as serpents. I told you we needed nursery help, didn't I? Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, unfortunately, what we tend to do as Christians is either be one or the other. Some of us are shrewd. We're very wary, cautious, and careful. But the shrewdness easily becomes, we easily become manipulative, cynical, self-seeking, and self-protective. Others are innocent, but they're naive, gullible, and easily taken in. He says that we need to be shrewd and innocent. We need to be cautious. We need to be wary. Not jeopardize our lives or the work of the gospel foolishly. We need to be careful so that we're not taken in by false leaders or false movements. And yet we need to be innocent. We need to be free of any kind of charge against us. Free of any kind of selfishness and self-seeking and self-protective motives in our cautiousness. We're going to be opposed and criticized for the gospel, but we must be sure that we're not opposed and criticized because of our behavior or our basic motivations. And then he looks past this uh, preaching mission of the twelve down through church history. They were, uh, as far as we know, not brought before governors and kings, and yet later in the, uh, in the book of Acts we see that the apostles were And he says you're to continue this preaching and there will continue to be this opposition. He says, I truly, for truly I say to you, this, uh, you shall not finish until the Son of Man comes, he says in verse 23. And notice that the words going through are in italics. This means that they've been supplied by the translators. They're not in the original. And I think probably we should supply different words. He's not saying, before you get through traveling around Israel, I'm going to come again. He's saying, before you get through evangelizing the cities of Israel, I'm sending you out to preach, to take this message to a lost world, and you're not going to complete it before I come. Therefore, you're never going to get to a place in which you can be free from these kinds of hostilities. But, though you need to be realistic about the opposition you will face, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be fearful or fretful. He says in 19, but when they deliver you up, do not be anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak, because it's the Father who speaks through you. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't ever do any preparation for a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study, but he's saying when you're brought before uh, a court in a trial, you don't have to worry about preparing your own defense. God's going to give you the words. So you face a hostile world, but don't be anxious because of it. But we do need to be realistic that that we face hostilities. 21, he says, Brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child. This kind of of, uh, treachery within families only comes because people 
people's hearts are hardened. They're rebellious and they can, can distort even the natural love within a family. And you might have to face this kind of opposition. Verse 22, he says, but it is, it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, he's not thinking that we might lose our salvation because he says elsewhere that that's not the case. In John chapter 10, he says that we as believers are gifts from the Father to the Son. And he says, all that the Father has given me, I will raise up in the last day. I will not lose one. And he says that, that we are in the Father's hand and, and no one is able to snatch us out of that hand because no one is greater than the Father. So he's not considering that, that we might lose our salvation. But what he's speaking about is that persecution brings about a sifting within the church because those who are here simply to play games find out it's not so fun. Find out Christianity is not all fun and games. Many people will come to Jesus if it means finding a friend, uh, helping out with the problems of loneliness and inner frustration, uh, finding a little peace of mind. But when they find that they might endure persecution, well, that's a different story. And those who are just here for the fun are going to drop out. And they won't be saved because they never really submitted themselves to Jesus Christ as their Lord. But those who endure to the end will be saved because they're the ones who have come to know Christ in truth. And they will endure in spite of the persecution. In verse 23, he tells us that we don't need to, to seek persecution. We don't need to seek martyrdom. They persecute you in one city, flee to the next, he says. There's a very humorous story in uh, the annals of church history uh, concerning this. Within the first two or three centuries of the church, many people did not understand salvation very well. Many of the church leaders did not. Many felt that when we became, when you become a Christian, all of your sins before baptism uh, are forgiven and washed away in the waters of baptism. But then any sin you do after that would need to be atoned for in some way. And many felt that the one way to guarantee the atoning of those sins would be to die as a martyr for the faith. And therefore, some of them actually sought martyrdom. Church historians tell us of, of uh, one young man in the city of Alexandria in, in northern uh, Egypt, whose name was Origen, who became a very influential church leader. But when he was about 19, his father was taken out into the streets and killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And Origen, feeling courageous, wanted to join his father and be killed too, and thereby assure his own salvation. But his mother didn't want to lose both husband and son, so she took all of his clothes and hid them. And Origen wanted to be martyred, but he wasn't quite sure he wanted to do it in the nude. So he uh, stayed indoors. But Jesus says, don't seek this kind of thing. Don't be foolish. Uh, it's not a, you don't become a hero just because you're a martyr. Uh, if they persecute you, then, then flee the next city. Don't think you have to, to search it out. Well, it's, a, it's not an easy thing being a Christian messenger in the midst of a hostile world. People are going to persecute us. It might be very difficult. And how is it that we can keep from being intimidated by the world which is hostile towards God? How do we keep from cowering in fear before their opposition, letting it overcome us? Well, Jesus tells us in this next section, 
verses 24 to 33. He says here that we should let our fear of God be greater than our fear of man and thereby overcome our fear of man. He says a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he has become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Beelzebul is a, a name that was used for the devil. Notice back in chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So they're saying that he was operating under satanic power. Jesus says, they're calling me this. Now, I'm the leader. Don't be surprised if you're following after me and they call you these sorts of things too. Therefore, he says, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Don't be intimidated by them, he says, because there is a coming day of judgment. And this fact should be both an encouragement for us and also a challenge. It's an encouragement to know that though we may be wronged here in this life, we may be abused, we may be passed over when it comes time for promotion because we're a Christian and somebody doesn't like that. We may be an outcast in our family or neighborhood or, or spoken ill of in some way or even beaten and killed. Well, though you may have these pressures, don't fear them. Don't worry, because there will come a day of judgment. A day in which all of the wrongs in this life will be righted. All the things that they've done to you in secret will come to light, and God will rectify all of the injustices. But this judgment is not only an encouragement for us, but it's also a challenge. Because we're told that all of our lives, too, will come under judgment, the scrutiny of God's light. Things that we have done and hidden will be, will, uh, uh, will be made known. Things we've done in secret. Now, we're told clearly that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We won't experience God's wrath. Jesus Christ has taken all of the wrath of God upon himself for us. But we will have to face up to who we are, what we've been. And that should sober us up. Jesus says, don't fear them. Don't be intimidated by their pressure. Because there will come a day when you're going to have to face up to what you've been. Now, most of us, and very probably not any of us, is intimidated by physical persecution. Uh, I doubt many of us have, have uh, ever been threatened with uh, being beat, uh, beaten up for the sake of the gospel or somebody threatened to kill us because of our faith. But we do all experience social pressure. We're all worried from time to time of what people will think. And we don't want them to think that we're weirdos or religious fanatics. I know that's a, a problem that I have and I have to, to wrestle with. I don't want them to think that I'm, I'm a kook. I don't want them to reject me. I want everybody to like me. But Jesus says, don't fear them. Don't fear what they're... Uh, what they may think of you, what they may say to you. And instead, he says in verse 27, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Don't be intimidated uh, due to fear from them, but rather speak forth, present the gospel clearly and boldly to the world around you. 
These things which I have told you proclaim to the whole world. God has appointed all of us to be His ambassadors on this earth. He chose the disciples to go out on this preaching mission and go from city to city and preach the gospel. And He may choose some of us to do that sort of thing. Though with most of us, He's chosen instead to sprinkle us across the, the Boise area. Put us in different places, with, in different neighborhoods, and different jobs, different friends, different relatives, uh, different hobbies, so that we'll have... Uh, all sorts of different acquaintances and associations here so that we can, can go and be his ambassadors all throughout the community. This last week I heard Howard Hendricks on the radio and he said that a, a woman had, had spoken to him uh, rather joyously saying, I'm, I'm new to the city, but I praise the Lord. He's put me in a job in an, in an office with five other Christians and in my neighborhood I've already met three other Christians. Isn't that wonderful? And Hendricks responded, gee, that is too bad because it's going to be a lot harder for you to be uh, his witness if you're surrounded by Christians all the time. Wouldn't it have been great if God had made you the only Christian in the office and the only one in the neighborhood so that you could reach out with the gospel there? Too often, I, we're like this lady. We go to 12 Bible studies a week so that we can enjoy the feeding, the spiritual feeding. We can enjoy the fellowship and we forget that God has sent us, just like the disciples, to be His ambassadors in the world, to carry this message, the good news of the gospel, to the people around us. And that's what He tells them to do, to proclaim it on the rooftops. In verse 28, He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, don't fear men. They might malign you. They might talk behind your back. They might uh, make you uh, miss out on parties and clubs and promotions and, and whatnot. They may even beat you. The worst, the very worst they can do is kill your body. But don't fear them. Fear instead the one who can kill, kill both body and soul in hell. Now, we usually don't like preachers to talk about hell. And we think of hellfire damnation preachers as people who are emotional because they can't uh, think of anything good to say, so they have a lot of froth. But Jesus speaks about hell here not because He wants to scare us, but because He wants to, because He loves us and wants us to see that, that there uh, is going to be a division within humanity. If our lives are dominated by the fear of men, by what they think, he says that there are eternal consequences. We may end up uh, spending eternity separated from God. We should be dominated instead by fear of God. He doesn't mean for us as Christians that we're afraid that if we slip up one time, He's going to send us to hell. Because the Scriptures tell us He won't do that. But rather, we're, we're dominated by a sense of awe and respect for this God whom we serve. As Peter says in the first chapter of his first epistle, uh, if therefore you invoke as Father Him who judges all men impartially according to their deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your stay on earth. If you're calling Him Father and you realize that He's the one who will judge the whole world, then let your desire to please Him, your respect for Him, overwhelm and, uh, your fear of men and desire to please them. 
earn their approval. And to clarify that he's not saying that, that he wants us all to be afraid of God, he compares us with sparrows in verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, a sparrow is not worth much. Two are sold for a cent. And, and the word here is the, he uses it as a word for the smallest copper coin in the, uh, in the, in the monetary system of the day. It's worth a half a penny. And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the, your father. In other words, not even does, this, does one sparrow die apart from God's plan for it. You are greater than sparrows. Therefore, the clear implication is that not one of you can die apart from God's plan for you. Though men may kill the body, even that they cannot do apart from God's plan. We have a sovereign God who overrules all of nature, who rules over all of nature and all of men and their actions. There's no such thing as an untimely death for a Christian. If one of us dies, we die only because it's God's plan for us for, for right now. Therefore, don't fear them because even if they do bad things to you, they can't do it apart from what God sanctions. Then in 32 to 33, he, he clarifies, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you uh, are, allow yourselves to be intimidated, overcome with fear during the times of persecution or opposition, then you're going to be one whom he, who he will deny in heaven. It doesn't mean if we just slip up a few times. You think of Peter who denied Christ three times on one night, the night of his trial. But what he has in mind is, is those repeated denials of him. Because the only way we can make a repeated denial of Him is because we don't really know Him. So these words are, in a, are, are a challenge, but also an encouragement. Because if we really do know Him, then we're going to be able to stand the tri under trial. We're going to be able to, to persevere and endure under persecution. And then He will confess us to the Father in heaven. So we let our fear of God then overcome the fear of man. We let our desire to please Him, our respect for Him and the awesomeness of His person guide us and motivate us to live according to what He says we should live. But we don't fear Him because it, it means a, uh, it holds out a promise to an automatic, uh, easy, comfortable life. We see in this next paragraph that there, that there's, uh, Christianity calls for commitment, sacrifice, and even conflict. It says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her, her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the enemies of his household. Now he's not saying that he's he came purposely to make people fight. This is just a Semitic way of saying, uh, my coming has caused a division. 
Because the truth which I'm preaching is a truth that not all men like. And people get very hostile when they're confronted with the truth and they don't want to obey it. They don't want to submit to it. And he says it's going to cause family conflicts. But, he says, don't let that dissuade you from following me. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Many of us know of, of uh, Jews who have become Christians, who have been disowned by their families or undergone intense pressure. In most countries, uh, for a Muslim to become a Christian uh, means that he'll be uh, kicked out of his family, ostracized, and possibly even his life would be threatened. For many of us, we, we feel a tension that if, well, if we grow, grow closer to Christ, I'm going to grow away from my spouse. Or maybe we feel pressure from our parents. Uh, they say, be successful, work hard, get rich like me. And we feel, well, that's not, I don't really want that to be my priority. And we feel pressured, feel there's going to be a conflict if we don't pursue life the same way mom and dad did. Or for others, there's a threat because the children are, are, uh, are deeply committed and we're pretty wishy-washy. Well, Jesus says no matter what the, the problem, what the conflict, persevere and submit to me. Don't turn from following me, even if it's going to be a conflict. Now, let me say a, uh, a word by way of parenthesis here. There are many people who make conflicts be more than they need to be. There's many a wife, for instance, who has a non-Christian husband. He says, well, I don't like you doing all this church stuff. She says, well, I don't care. I'm going to persevere and I'm going to come to church every time it's open and, and uh, four Bible studies during the week and this is just, you know, my cross to bear and I have to follow the Lord. Well, she can still uh, pursue Christ, get the fellowship, the teachings she needs and be a little more creative in, in terms of the, in, the way she gets the input she needs. So we don't need to always uh, create the conflicts. They're, they're going to come by themselves often enough. But he says it's following me demands a sacrifice. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now this very phrase, take up your cross, has been watered down for most of us. We look upon a cross as a beautiful symbol. We, we wear it around our necks. We use it as an architectural enhancement for our, our church buildings. Put it up on our banners. And yet for the people of the first century, the cross was a, a horrible symbol. It was a, a means of an ignominious death, the death of an outcast and criminal who would be taken and hung and tortured in death for hours and sometimes days upon that cross outside the city. And we often say things like, well, I have some allergies and I just can't get rid of them or got a little rheumatism and won't go away, but I guess that's my cross to bear. Jesus is not talking about those kinds of things. He says you need to be willing to make an ultimate sacrifice. Take up your cross and follow me. Identify yourself with me, even if that means you're going to be a criminal in your culture and put to death. There are many things that, that hold us back from commitment to him. I uh, have a friend in Dallas who's a lawyer and he uh, he told me one time that, that one of the reasons he didn't become a Christian was that he had a Christian in his office who, because of family commitments, wouldn't work on Saturdays, wanted to be with his family. And he said, uh, if that's what being a Christian means, I don't want to do it. 
Because I don't want anything to stand in the way of my ambition and my success and progression up this, uh, uh, the ranks of this law firm. He was not willing to take up his cross to make a sacrifice. I had another person tell me uh, a couple weeks ago, said, I, I think Christianity is true, but I'm not sure if I'm willing to, to make the financial sacrifices that might come if I commit myself to Christ. But there are, Jesus says, uh, if any man doesn't take up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. But why would we want to make that kind of sacrifice if those are the ones that, are, that, that he calls us to? Why would we be willing to risk our very lives? Well, he's already told us one thing. Up in the previous paragraph, he said there's going to be a division between humanity. He says that we are eternal creatures. We're going to live on forever. And after this life, there's going to be a day of judgment. And we might choose a path that might be more comfortable in some ways for us in this life. might be easier. And yet the end result would be eternal separation from God. Eternal misery. And therefore we're, we want to make that sacrifice and choose instead an eternal bliss and fulfillment in God's presence. Verse 39, he says something else. Another reason why we'd want to make this kind of sacrifice. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. There's a paradox in life. We think that what's really going to make me happy is if I can achieve these certain financial, uh, uh, certain financial status, if I can achieve a certain lifestyle, a marital status, have certain uh, hobbies and pleasures that I can do, I've always longed for. And yet when we, when we grab onto those things and we find it, we find that we've lost life. We find that those things are fun, but they don't really satisfy. And we're filled instead with emptiness, frustration, boredom. And then the end result, as we've already said, would be an eternal separation from God. And yet as we lose our lives... For Christ's sake, we give up all these things and and we may achieve some of them, we may not, but that's not the important thing for us. It's not so important what I achieve in terms of my own ego building or or, uh, material gains or anything else. We give up these things as being top priorities. It looks to others like we're being foolish, we're letting our lives go down the drain, and yet we find a life with peace, with internal satisfaction, with joy, with excitement and adventure, with a confidence knowing that that our lives are counting for something for now and eternity. And then the end result is the, the eternal relationship with God. So why make this kind of sacrifice? Because it would be foolish not to. When verses 16 to 39, Jesus says that most people, well, you're going to have problems because most people don't really want to hear the gospel. They don't want to submit to it. But he encourages them in 40 to 42, there will be some who will want to hear the gospel. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. In other words, there will be people who will receive you because they're receiving me and thereby receiving the Father who sent me. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones 
even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Now here he's not speaking of children by the term these little ones, but the least of the preachers, the gospel preachers. He who receives uh, in the name of a disciple, yes, I want to be a disciple of Christ, and I'm receiving you and give you a cup of cold water to refresh you and send you on your way. He who does that to even the least of these shall get his reward. So, we are in a hostile world. There are many who don't love Christ, who don't love God, who don't want the truth. But he says, don't fear them. Instead, courageously take the message of the gospel to them. The very worst that they could do is kill you. In October 1931, a widower, Jack Vinson, a beloved Southern Presbyterian missionary, was captured by bandits while visiting rural churches in Kiangshu province. A government force loyal to Chiang Kai-shek pursued the kidnappers and surrounded them in a small town. The bandit offered the missionary freedom if he would persuade the force to withdraw. Vincent agreed only if they would release other captives. The bandits refused and tried to shoot their way out. In the Malay, many bandits were killed and the survivors fled with Vincent. However, the missionary could not run because of recent surgery. One bandit shot him, then another ran up and cut off his head. The daughter of a Chinese pastor who was among those rescued by government troops recalled having heard a bandit uh, tell him, I'm going to kill you. Aren't you afraid? She said Vincent had replied simply, Kill me if you wish. I will go straight to God. Jack Vincent was the first Southern Presbyterian martyr in China. A colleague, E.H. Hamilton, was inspired by his courage to write a poem that was widely printed and became an encouragement to other missionaries and Chinese believers in constant danger. Afraid? Of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid? Of that? Afraid. Of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear His welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid? Of that? Afraid. Of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, O heaven's art, a wound of His a counterpart. Afraid? Of that? Afraid. Of what? To do by death what life could not, baptize with blood a stony plot, till soul shall blossom from the spot? Afraid? Of that? Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that's always telling us to watch out for ourselves, to seek the pleasures of this world as the means to fulfillment and happiness. And Lord, it's so easy to be sucked up into all of that. We pray that you will help us. Thank you for the lesson this morning, reminding us that we need to have our minds transformed and remember that only in losing our life for the sake of Christ will we really find it. We thank you for the opportunity of knowing you in this life. Pray that you will give us courage to proclaim the gospel boldly to the world around us. 
to live without fear because we fear you, respect you for all that you are. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.